Well, hey, welcome. So glad you've joined us. I can't wait to get into the book of Habakkuk with you as we continue our series in the Minor Prophets. Now, let me just throw out an encounter that maybe you've experienced uh, recently. I call this the catching up during COVID encounter. So it's, it's like when you go to a grocery store or a library or some kind of public space and you see someone that you haven't seen in a while and you're like, oh, hey, how are you? Oh my gosh, look at your baby, so cute, you know, so big. And they're like, wow, yeah, great, how are you doing? And you're kind of catching up and it's awesome. And then you find yourself kind of instinctively, I don't know, like tiptoeing around what you might call some of the more controversial issues, you know, because you don't know where they stand on, let's say, masks or vaccines or, you know, the virus in general, or you don't know how they, uh, how they voted in the election or, or even if they consider the uh, election legit, right? So you stay away from all that stuff and you just kind of talk about uncontroversial un- stuff that everybody agrees with. Like, you know, you might talk about your vacations or your garden or like, how aggressive door-to-door solar panel salesmen have become, right? Stuff that we all agree on. And, and like there's, there's like a tension in the air. I don't know if you feel it. There's tension in the air, and I, but I think we need a name for it. So I was talking to my wife about this and she's a genius and she, she just nails stuff on the head sometimes. And she said, it feels like everybody is angsty right now angsty. And I was like, that's it. That's the word. Everybody is angsty about something right now. Angsty. So you, you maybe have heard of the word angst, right? That's like, you know, you think about teenage angst or whatever. Angst is basically feeling worried. If you look it up at a dictionary, it's like basically being anxious. You might have angst about your kids or about your health or about your job or about all those uh, people who are spreading false information and all the media hoopla, right? But, but angsty is where you add something else. You add angry. You have angst and you have anger and you're, you're angsty. You're angry at people who disagree with you. You're angry at people who are trying to force you into their narrative. And you're angry at people who you have to clean up their mess after them because they're not doing it, right? Angsty. And it feels like everybody is angsty about something right now. And there are triggers everywhere. Or you could say it this way, everybody is seeing red right now. Everybody's just kind of seeing red. And none of us like it. Like when I talk to people, no matter where they are, you know, politically, socially, uh, even, even in their, you know, religious beliefs, nobody wants to be angsty. Well, there are a few trolls out there. They're like pigs in mud right now. They love it. But most of us, we're tired of it. We're done, right? We're exhausted, and we can't wait until this is all over. Everybody is angsty about something right now. Everybody is seeing red. I heard uh, about this new trend in psychotherapy. It's called anger expression therapy. It's where if you have any anger whatsoever, you are supposed to just express it immediately. It's all the rage. Yeah, that was a dad joke. I got you. Ha <laughs> ha There's no one in here laughing, so I'm just trusting that you're laughing. And if not, sorry, I'm just trying to keep you on your toes with a little bit of pastoral punishment. You, okay, I'm done. Moving on. So we're coming to Habakkuk today. We're coming to Habakkuk. And it's amazing because even though this was written 2,500 years ago on the other side of the planet with a different language, a different culture, different historical context than we have, what we see is so relatable. 
we see that Habakkuk is this man who is seeing red. He's seeing red. He's full of anger and anxiety. He's coming to God in this exhausted, desperate, honest, gritty prayer. Habakkuk is going to teach us how to live by faith when we're seeing red. It's going to teach us how we can experience the peace that we long for, the joy that we long for in God, even when injustice is pushing us toward anxiety and anger. That's what we're doing today. So if you've got a paper Bible, turn to Habakkuk. Otherwise, it's you know, pretty easy to find it on your phone or whatever. Uh, Habakkuk is like in the middle of the Bible to the right. So if you are in Nahum, you need to keep going. If you're in Zephaniah, you've gone too far. Habakkuk. And don't feel afraid to use your table of contents. It's it's this short book. You can read it in about 15 minutes. I highly encourage you do. It contains what uh, is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. We're going to get to that later. And what we're going to do is just look at a few of the kind of main parts of this book so we can get the gist. And we're going to think about what it teaches us about living by faith when we're seeing red. Are you ready? Let's do it. Let's dive in. So uh, we're going straight into verse one, the very first words of this book. And we see what this book is. Uh, Habakkuk says, this is a prophecy. Now Habakkuk, he doesn't do what a lot of the other prophets do, where he kind of like spends some time talking about who he is. No, he just goes straight to business. And he wants us to know this is a prophecy that uh, Habakkuk received from God. A prophecy is a word from the Lord. And here's the crazy thing. If you could kind of pull back the translator curtain and see the Hebrew word behind our English word prophecy, what you would see is that Hebrew word is often used in the Old Testament as a way to describe a weight or a, a burden. So in Hebrew, it would be totally reasonable that if you were carrying a heavy weight, you would put that weight, you would put that prophecy on the back of a donkey to carry it for you. What we see right away is Habakkuk is saying, when you're seeing red, what you need is a weighty, glorious word from the Lord. And that's what we're experiencing. And this is so important because as followers of God, we are tempted to turn to all sorts of other words, all sorts of news pundits and podcasts and all sorts of distractions when we're seeing red. But Habakkuk says, nope, eyes right here. This is a weighty word from the Lord that you need right now when you're seeing red. Let's look at verse two. So we're just noticing uh, what, what this is. And we, we see that, oh, this starts with a prayer. He says, how long, Lord? That's an interesting way to start a prayer. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But, huh, did you notice this? But you do not listen. Huh, okay. Or cry out to you violence, but you, you do not save. Huh. Is, like, it seems like Habakkuk has been praying for a while, right? What's God doing about it? Well, at least according to Habakkuk, it seems like God's not doing anything about it. That's, that's pretty relatable. So, so God isn't answering Habakkuk's prayers. Okay. So this is the, this is one thing. So God's not really answering. What's the next thing we see? Oh, we see that he's 
praying for something. Well, what is he praying for? He says, okay, why do you make me look at injustice? Oh, that's not good. Let's underline that. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Okay, that's not good. Oh, there's more. Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Wow, it really seems to me like everybody's fighting in Habakkuk's world. Everybody's fighting. There's a lot of violence and, and injustice. So, so, so far we see that, that uh, God isn't answering Habakkuk's prayers. We see everybody's fighting. Let's see what else we notice as we go to verse four. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. So this seems to be another thing Habakkuk is praying about. He says, the law is paralyzed and, oh, justice never prevails. That sounds terrible. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now, at this point, it's important. We'll leave this up here. It's important to to think about the historical context that Habakkuk is writing in. So when he's saying, you know, the, the law is paralyzed, he's talking about his king, his king in Judah, King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is part of a long line of Judean kings. His father is Josiah. Now, Josiah was one of the great kings in Judean history. He was, uh, you might know the story if you've been around church for a while. He became king when he was like a kid uh, and he loved God and he did what Judean kings were supposed to do, which was lead people to love God and to, to, to uh, love, ju- like to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly uh, with God. The kings were supposed to, in Judah, make their city, make their nation, their people like a beacon of justice in a world that was filled with corruption and sin. But Jehoiakim, you can read about him in Jeremiah. He was kind of like the emo kid who grew up around the palace, hated everything. And when he became king, he went in like the totally opposite direction that his father did. In Jeremiah 22, you read about how he built like this opulent palace for himself on the backs of slaves. You read in Jeremiah 26, there was a, there was a prophet, there were actually several prophets that came to him, including Jeremiah but there was a prophet named Uriah. This story is especially terrible. Uriah came and he confronted King Jehoiakim. He was like, bro, you're way offline here. Like, what are you thinking? You know, you're, you're doing the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. And uh, Je- Jehoiakim got so mad, he threatened to kill Uriah. So Uriah ran away. He became a political exile in Egypt. So instead of leaving him alone, Jehoiakim hired Dog the bounty hunter to go to Egypt, drag him back so that he could butcher Uriah, the prophet, right in his palace, right in his courts. So these are the headlines that Habakkuk is reading in the Jerusalem Daily Times. And and this is why he's saying, we'll go back to this, the law's paralyzed. Justice isn't prevailing. Justice is perverted. And what he's saying is, not only is God not answering my prayers, not only is everybody fighting, but the people who are supposed to be leading the way in justice are completely incompetent. No one's dependable. No one's dependable. So he's seeing red. Can you relate to any of this? Are you seeing red? Do you feel like 
your prayers are bouncing off the walls or that God isn't listening? Do you feel like everybody around you is just fighting all the time? Do you feel like nobody is dependable? Here's the good news. If you do, if you're struggling right now with anxiety, with anger, you're trying to reconcile what you believe about God with what you see happening in his world. If you're seeing red, the good news is that that's to be expected. That you're not alone. That Habakkuk would say, I think that sometimes faithful people see red. Sometimes faithful people see red. And it's not because of a lack of faith. It's precisely because they have faith in God that they're seeing red. So if that's you, you're in a good place. You're not alone. There's another thing here that's just easy to miss in this little prayer is that I, I really believe And I think this is reiterated in other portions of scripture that faithful people should be political people. Faithful people should move into the political realm, the the civic realm, the governmental realm. And I would say it this way. I think you can't care about justice truly if you don't give a lick about politics. Because as we see, the law is supposed to be this channel through which God protects the vulnerable, provides for the needy, right? It's, it's supposed to be this, this way that, that godly, wise, gentle, courageous people move and bring the justice of heaven to earth through their work in government and in civil society. And that's not happening for Habakkuk. And that's why he's exasperated. And I, I think Christians who are seeing red have a responsibility before God to do everything in their power, everything in their power short of sin, to be a force for redemption in their cities, to keep evil at bay and to bring about as much justice for as many people as possible. So run for the school board. You know, volunteer in your classroom, go to the polls, hand out flyers, go to that nonviolent protest. You're you're participating in justice. And there are people right now, maybe even you, you're civil servant right now. And I just want you to know that we love you. We pray for you. We know that this is a painful time for you. And we have your back. You might work in a school, fire department, police department, public health department. You might be working along the lines of racial reconciliation. Man, we are with you. We're with you. You're doing good work. Here's my encouragement. Don't be paralyzed. Don't be paralyzed. Be filled with the spirit. Be loving, gracious, wise, and courageous. So that's the prayer. And now we, we have, you know, multiple other sections, multiple chapters to go. And we can't, we don't have time, you know, to spend just kind of do, taking that pace through everything. So we're just going to summarize the next few sections. So in verses five through 11 of chapter one, basically God says, Habakkuk, I hear you and I feel you. I feel you. I'm seeing red too. I see the corruption and the sin and the violence of my people. And I am going to take care of this soon. But here's the thing. You're never going to guess how I do it. Even if I told you, he says in verse five, you would be utterly amazed. He says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. Yes, those Babylonians. Let's throw Daniel to be torn apart by lions 
in, into a lion's den, Babylonians. The let's throw the Hebrew slaves, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be burned alive in a furnace, Babylonians. Yeah, the Babylonians that say, uh, we're going to build a giant golden statue and anyone who doesn't bow down and worship the statue of the emperor is going to be killed, Babylonians. These brutal, thieving, power drunk, enslaving Babylonians. God says in verse six, I'm going to raise them up, which means he's going to give them what they need to bring a tornado of judgment to Judah, to God's people. And Habakkuk responds in verse 12. Basically, he says, what? What? The Babylonians? How, why? This is crazy, God. What kind of justice are they supposed to bring? On their best day, they're 10 times worse than we are on our worst day. They, they worship nothing but themselves. They're bloodthirsty, ethnocentric, imperialist. They treat people like animals. God, you are so holy that you, if you even associate yourself with those people, aren't you going to get yourself dirty? Strong words from Habakkuk. And this is where we come to the most famous verse. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible. Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. Let's zoom in here. He says, see, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. This is God talking about the Babylonians. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. You may have been coming to church for a while and maybe this sounds familiar. Well, it's probably familiar because uh, Paul quotes this in the New Testament, in his letters to the Galatians and to the Romans. And there's another uh, author that uh, quotes this as well in, in the book of Hebrews. And we have all of these historical letters contained in our Bibles. And I encourage you to check those out. But here's, here's I think, what, what Habakkuk wants us to know is that we're, when we're seeing red, we have to learn to live by faith. Simple, right? But what does that mean? What does it mean to live by faith? And I talk to people inside and outside the church and, and I, I hear something similar often when, I, when we talk about faith. Uh, and maybe you've heard this too. Maybe you've talked to an unchurched neighbor and, and they might say like, something like, um, you know, I'm glad you have your faith. I'm not very religious, but, you know, good on you. You know, you do you. And, and I, think, I think what they mean by faith, and I think they're being sincere and, and all that. This is not a dig, but I think what they mean by faith is your religion, right? Like, your faith is your religious beliefs. So it's what you believe about God, about the world, about the Bible, about prayer. And, and it's also your religious practice. So it's going to church, it's giving money, it's helping people, whatever. Now the trouble comes when we read Habakkuk, who's saying the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And we import this kind of worldly idea about faith into it. And we say, oh, so if I want to be a righteous person, I have to believe the right things and do the right things. And that's all well and good. I'm not against believing the right things and doing the right things, but that's not what God is talking about. That's not biblical faith. And it's actually not going to help us very much when we're seeing red. Why? Because all that is, is faith in faith. 
That's, that's having belief in belief itself. It's, it's putting our weight and our hope and our trust and deriving our joy out of what we believe and what we do. You see where that goes wrong? God isn't the hero. Our faith is the hero. And this, like, if that's what faith was, if it was what we believe and what we do, then Habakkuk could have stopped right there. And Habakkuk would only be one chapter and four verses long, and we wouldn't need Jesus, and everything would be great. It wouldn't be great. But he goes on. He goes on. And what he does is he starts talking about who God is. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this in uh, Hebrews 10, 38. This is where uh, the writer of Hebrews quotes Habakkuk 2, 4. He says, but my righteous one, so this is God talking about his righteous people will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. So for Habakkuk and the writer of Hebrews, faithfulness, is persistently living in light of who God is. That's our definition of faithfulness. Faithfulness is living in the light of who God is. It's not faith in what I believe and what I do. It's faith in who God is. And it's living as if that is true. That's the faithfulness that God says we have to have when we're seeing red. And this is why Uh, Habakkuk spends the last two chapters of this three chapter book just talking about, reflecting on who God is. And the first thing he says, and he wants us to know is that God is a God who promises justice. Look uh, in Habakkuk 2 verse 2. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation. So the revelation is uh, this this moment or this time when uh, God is going to reveal his answers to all of Habakkuk's prayers for justice. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets. So think think like Ten Commandments movie, right? Stone tablets so that a herald may run with it. So why put it on tablets? Well, tablets are stone. He's saying, etch it into stone. Like basically take my promise of this answered prayer, this revelation and put it in a time capsule because it's going to take a while, but the answers will come. I promise you it's written in stone. Verse three, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. It awaits an appointed time time. You know what this means, you guys? I'll tell you what this means. It means God has given history an appointment with justice. History has an appointment with justice. It's on God's calendar. There's a a day on God's calendar where evil will be stomped out. There's a day on God's calendar where violent, greedy men and women are going to get what's coming to them. There's a day on God's calendar when all suffering, all exploitation, all wage theft, all oppression, all human trafficking is going to end and joy is going to erupt. There's a day on God's calendar and God says, though it lingers, wait for it. It'll be worth the wait. So God is a God who will, he, he promises justice. Number two, God is a God who hates evil. Why does he hate evil? He hates evil because he loves good. 
And, and what happens um, in chapter two is uh, God, like Habakkuk basically makes a whole list of stuff that makes God mad. And anger says a lot about a person. Think about an angry person you know. What, do you, what does their anger tell you about what they love, <laughs> right? And anger can come in stages. There's denial, there's rage, there's bargaining, depression, and there's acceptance. These are the five stages of being on hold with T-Mobile. True story, not me, but it's my wife. She's amazing. And you, if you work at T-Mobile, sorry, uh, we love you. Great stuff, but you know, that there was a, anyway, moving on. So, you know, I'm not like a violent person, uh, but I do get angry. And, and guys, if you could see the things I get angry about, don't ask my wife or my kids, they will tell you. Uh, it's really humbling. It's, it's really embarrassing. Because often it's stupid stuff that makes me angry. It's stuff that really is more about my ego and my convenience. And it's less about the vulnerable people around me. The only times I've ever honestly thought about hurting another human being, like getting violent, is when someone has put one of my kids in danger. I don't know what it is. There's just kind of this instinct that rises up. And man, I'm like, you would be surprised at what a five foot seven pastor can do when you mess with his kids. So don't do it. At its best, anger can be a beautiful expression of love for someone or something that is precious, but often it's not that way for us. But what about God's anger? What, what does God get mad about? And what does that tell us about what he loves and who he is? Well, let's, let's check it out. Uh, chapter two, verses four through 19. God literally lists a bunch of stuff that fills him with wrath. In verse seven, we read that God's wrath is on those who extort, uh, which is basically when you, you're bigger, you're stronger, you're, you're a person, you're a nation or whatever, you barge into weaker people and you just take what you want because you can and they can't do anything about it. Now, if God hates extortion, what does he love? How about gentleness? Does God love gentleness? It's one of the fruit of the spirit. Verse nine, his wrath is on those who build their empires on the backs of the poor and the vulnerable. So if God hates powerful people who abuse the poor uh, to their own advantage, what does that say about what he loves? Well, how about justice? Justice. Verse 12, his wrath is on nations who are so obsessed with their own image and their own greatness and their own reputation that they're willing to just walk all over weaker nations. If God hates arrogant nationalism, what does that say about what he loves? How about humility? Verse 15, if God's wrath is on those who exploit people, And he specifically talks about uh, those who exploit people for sexual pleasure. So think about like uh, sex trafficking, rape, sexual harassment, abuse, revenge, porn. If God hates this, what does that say about what he loves? Well, how about human dignity? Verse 19, God's wrath is on those who look to man-made things like idols Uh, for answers while they ignore God. So in Habakkuk's day, the Babylonians and the Judeans were, they were making idols of wood and of metal and they were worshiping them and they were trying to get wisdom from them and trying to get blessing from them. And we don't necessarily do that with like little physical idols, but we do that with technology. Like even some of the ways, I don't know if you've noticed some of the ways that we 
talk, like we use quasi-religious language to talk about science as if it's this eternal, conscious, infallible, incorruptible principle of life that we will always get right and will never ever get wrong or mess up. We put our faith in it when we almost like worship it. God hates that. And if he hates the false promises of idol worship, what does that say about what he loves? Well, true worship, true worship. So this is a God who promises justice. It's a God who hates evil because he loves good. And we also see that this is a God who is doing something about injustice. And that's the whole point. He's doing something about injustice. And if you, if you only read one chapter of this book, it's, it'll take 15 minutes to read the whole thing. But man, if you can only read one chapter, read chapter three. It's this beautiful uh, vision of God. It, like Bible nerds call this a theophany. It's a vision of God coming with power to give everyone what is due them. And it's the hope of the world. He's doing something about injustice. He comes down in an literal, like a, or a, sorry, a figurative earthquake to sort out all of humanity. And we see why he does that in chapter three, verse 13. So let's just skip there. He says, you came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. So part of why he comes is to save those who are oppressed, to save the ones who trust him and love him and call out to him for help, that, that they will finally be set free from the violence and humiliation and exploitation and the lying of the enemy. But he also comes, if you read on in, in verse 13, he comes to, get this, crush the leader of the land of wickedness. To crush the leader of the land of wickedness. Do you know what he's talking about? He's, he's talking about the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The moment after Adam and Eve followed the temptation of this deceiving uh, serpent, this, this enemy, and they betrayed God, God promised in that moment that one of their descendants would one day crush the head of this serpent at the cost of the descendant's life. And Habakkuk is saying, that's what God is coming to do. He's going to crush the head of the enemy. And once and for all, he's going to purge injustice from the earth. Now, 500 years after this was written, there was a man named Jesus a Jewish man who claimed to be God himself. And they butchered him on a cross. His fellow Judeans betrayed him. They allied with an even worse nation than, than Babylon, the nation of Rome. And they butchered him. And in that moment, Matthew 27, what we see is amazing. We see that there was an earthquake. The earth shook when the son of glory was crucified. And in that moment, I think what we're meant to see is we're meant to make a connection here. We're, we're, the earth shook because God's wrath, all of his wrath over our sin and over our injustice that we've unleashed on each other and on his world, he takes that on himself. On himself. He took all the pain of our suffering our injustice, our humiliation. He's, he's identified with every dehumanized, enslaved 
abused person who's ever lived and died. And that, you guys, is the moment of the greatest anger and the greatest love that the, the world will ever know. Because God took it on himself. He was willing to do something for injustice, even when it cost him his life. Can you put your faith in a God like that? I will. I will by God's grace. Now, now what do we do with this? This is just the last thought before we close our time. You know, what do we do? What do we do when we're seeing red? Uh, How do we maybe control our anger? Well, I heard heard about these two roommates. There was one roommate who was like talking to his other one. And he said, um, when I'm mad at you, you never fight back. How do you do that? How do you control your anger? The other roommate said, I clean the toilet. The first roommate said, how does that help? And the second roommate said, well, I use your toothbrush. Still with me? Guys, what does it look like to have, to, to live by faith when we're seeing red? There's one command in Habakkuk and the command is to wait, to wait for justice. We read it earlier. We'll go back to it. Habakkuk chapter two, verse three. Though it linger, wait for it. Wait for it. What God is saying here is justice is a long game. But trust me, trust me. And while you and I, we're going to continue to do everything morally and legally possible to fight injustice and protect the vulnerable, we must also wait for the ultimate justice that is to come. And waiting can be hard. My son, Silas, um, when he was, uh, he was very young, uh, he was born very premature. He was 15 ounces when he was born. He spent four months in the NICU. Uh, he grew to be uh, five or six pounds, this healthy, beautiful little baby boy. We took him home. It was amazing. But then he got sick, really sick. We had to bring him to the emergency room. And I remember I was there with him. I remember they said, we have to, do a spinal tap because he might have meningitis. I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen a spinal tap on a premature inf, infant. It's horrible. It's horrifying. So they, they bent him basically in half to expose his spine as much as possible. They're doing their jobs. But Silas was, he was in agony, wordless agony. He was heaving. And, and as a grown man, I was just standing there crying in silent horror, watching my son in this pain. And every instinct in my body wanted to push those nurses away who were just trying to do their job, but take my son and hold him. But I had to wait. I had to wait because I knew that in, in despite all the pain and the suffering, the agony that my son was going through, what really mattered was that there, there was a time where the doctors are going to know what was happening in his body. That's what mattered. And the moment they were done, the nanosecond they were done, I held him in my arms as he cried himself to sleep on my chest. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know maybe what's waking you up at night these days. I don't know where you're feeling angsty or where you're seeing red or where maybe where you're feeling like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. But I do know this. God is watching us heaving in wordless agony. He's with us. He's waiting too. 
I choose to trust in a God who's put justice on his calendar. I choose today to trust in a God who says that no pain, no death, no injustice will ever be forgotten. Everything will be made right. Every tear will be personally wiped from our eyes. And we see this incredible change in Habakkuk. This man who was in agony, accusing God, who is now in verse, the closing words of this uh, beautiful little book saying, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no, there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my savior. And Lord, that's our prayer. That no matter what our circumstances now, that we would be a people who can find peace and joy because of who you are. Make us faithful. Amen.